Welcome back to the podcast. I am so happy to be here with you all today. Um, This is an important one. I have been meaning to do this topic for a long time. I bought a great book last summer from Poor Richards in Frankfurt, and I just haven't gotten around to it until now. I wanted to make sure I did it right. So, a couple things to note before I get started here. Uh, Most of the information that I got for this story was from the book Mud Creek Medicine, The Life of Eula Hall and the Fight for Appalachia by Kieran Batraju. And he interviewed Eula several times. He knew her pretty well. Um, She asked him to change some of the names for the book. So as I'm telling this story, just know that some of the characters' names might not be their real names. Other thing I wanted to say before I get started, Um, this is something I'm pretty interested in. Uh, I wrote my senior thesis in college for my political science degree on the history of Appalachia and its socioeconomics and how it got to where it is today, basically. Um, If you don't know a lot about this, I really encourage you to read up on it. But I think probably most of my listeners have a pretty good basic understanding of how the coal companies treated their employees, how they exploited them, and I say this in the past tense like it's not still happening, but it is, Um, how they endanger them, and, you know, how that wealth gap just increased and increased over the years. Um, You know, if you haven't visited Appalachia, I encourage you to. Um... You'll probably notice there are not a lot of grocery stores. There is not a lot of access to good health care still. Some of the schools are really, really nice, which is interesting. Um, But just in general, there's still a ton of poverty. There's a lot of sickness, a lot of illness, um, and huge, huge wealth gaps. So um, that's, that's a very simple explanation of what's going on in Appalachia. And if you want some book recommendations, boy, I will send them to you. Um, but for today, I didn't want to get too deep into those details because I wanted this story to be all about Eula. So today I'm going to tell you the story of Eula Hall. Our story starts in Greasy Creek, Kentucky. So if you look at a map and you go all the way to the east, there's Pike County. And then right alongside it to the west is Floyd. And Eula, I believe, was born in the part of Greasy Creek that's in Pike County. She was the third of five children. She was delivered, quote, on the muddied floor in the back bedroom of their four-room mountain cabin. No electricity, no plumbing, as was common. Greasy Creek was like other Appalachian towns. Uh, Company camps were starting to sprout up as the coal industry grew, so populations were growing a little bit. Uh, Some roads were being constructed. You would see the occasional grocery store, Um, more schools. But when I say schools, I mean like, you know, the one-room schoolhouse in an old barn that sort of thing. So things were growing up a little bit, but the average person was not living comfortably, and families needed all the help they could get. So as soon as Eula was old enough, she started helping in the garden, in the kitchen, wherever she could. Most children in the area did go to school, um, 
a big part of it was because parents relied on the schools to feed their kids a meal. Um, and that was a huge help to, to parents and to families then. So they really relied on that and, and keep that in mind. Eula's father, Lee, was a tenant farmer. Uh, so he gave two-thirds of what he raised back to the landowner. Look up vertical farming if you're unfamiliar. That's what Lee did. That's what most farmers had to do in those areas. Lee's goal was to eventually buy the land he worked and lived on, and he'd made that promise to his wife, Eula's mother, Nanny. Nanny Elizabeth was Lee's second wife. She was from North Carolina and had worked as a school teacher in West Virginia. So Nanny and Lee had five children together, and then there were also two from a previous marriage, so seven kids living there all together, and cousins would come and stay sometimes too. So to give you an idea of how cramped quarters it was, five of the children shared one room. And again, this was all normal. So they had cows, pigs, chickens, all your basic farm animals. And um, gosh, by the time Eula was nine, the family had enough money to buy a chair for each member of the family so that they could all eat together at the dinner table. And that was a really big deal. Now, Eula was one of the older children, so she took on a sort of caretaking role for the other kids. Um, so a lot of the time she was basically babysitting the other kids. Um, they were uh, Baptist parishioners at Greasy Creek. However, they did not go to church regularly, and it's pretty much just because they were so burnt out by the end of the work week, they didn't have the energy to go. However, church was one of the things that tied them to their community, that bonded them with their neighbors, and that principle deeply affected Eula. Eula remembered walking home with her dad one night as a child and asking him why some of the houses had their cook stoves on, you know, going with smoke coming out of their chimneys, while others didn't. And he had to explain to her that that's how you could tell who had enough food to eat dinner that night and who didn't. So Eula would start making note of which ones didn't have their chimneys going, and she'd go home and steal a little bit of corn loaf to take back to the neighbors who needed it. So from a very early age, Eula just had this, this um, sense of who needed help and how to help them. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 1932, Eula was six years old, and her mother was pregnant again. When she went into labor, the kids were rushed outside, and Lee stayed inside with his wife. Nanny had already had a difficult pregnancy three years prior with her son, Andy, but she'd never been to a hospital, never even been to a doctor. 
but each pregnancy had gotten more difficult, and so finally for this round, she had decided to hire a midwife. And the concept of hiring a midwife was still new to Appalachia, so everyone was curious, including Eula. So when the midwife arrived, Eula snuck back in the house to kind of observe from afar. Unfortunately, the midwife informed the family that she would not be able to deliver the baby. There was too much blood. So she pulled Lee aside and she was like, look, you have to run for help right now or we're going to lose your wife. Real doctors were far away. I mean, they would have had to go to have gone to Pikeville or Prestonburg too far. So Lee headed for the grocery store to look for one of the town elders, a man named Arthur. And Arthur was like, yeah, I can get you a doctor over there, but it's going to be expensive. And Lee said he would give up all his livestock if he had to. That was all he had. So four hours after Nanny had gone into labor, this Arthur shows up with a Dr. Scott. Unfortunately, it was already too late for the child. It was born. It was a stillborn. He diagnosed Nanny with varicose veins and blamed them for bursting between contractions. Eula was in the room witnessing all of this, by the way. And Dr. Scott said without a transfusion, he wasn't sure how long Nanny would survive. His suggestion was to give her lots of water and pray. Eula's stillborn sibling was laid to rest the next day. And experiences like this shaped Eula. People died from preventable things all the time because of lack of accessibility to healthcare. Um, she had one childhood friend fall through some stairs and get a nail stuck in her foot, and, and that friend died like a few weeks later. The other problem was that cleaning and hygiene products were expensive for these people. So uh, the Rileys used baking soda for just about everything. Um, once Clorox was introduced to Appalachia, people were adding it to well water to make it more potable. Now, there were polyfoxers. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, the Hollers doctor. Okay, and these guys would master the art of homemade mountain medicine. Some of them figured out legitimate treatments for minor things, which was fine. But others would claim to cure cancer or that they could make your ears smaller, stuff like that. Uh, if you want to hear more about this, I put out some Appalachian medicine uh, episodes several months ago. Go find those. Uh, they're fun. But one of the big problems with these, uh, quote, doctors is that the people grew to really trust these guys, whether they were actually helping them or not, because they were people from their own communities. They knew these people. And so when big city doctors tried to come in and do things differently, there was a high level of distrust. Plus, the other thing is Appalachians have a great deal of respect for their land and for nature. It's, it's spiritual. And so trying to replace these natural remedies with chemical drugs was a tall order. Now, as Eula approached 9, 10 years old, Nanny really wanted to get her into school. But the closest one was an hour and a half walk out of the holler, and there were no buses. So finally, the Rileys decided to move into a trailer at the mouth of the holler, which cut it down to about a 30-minute walk to school, which was way more doable. 
So the oldest kids stayed and worked the farm, and then the younger few went to school, including Eula. So in August of 1936, Eula started at Greasy Middle School, which was a two-room wood barn, and Eula quickly skipped a grade because she was smart, and her favorite things to study were science and health. So there, for a short while, things were going really well, and she was loving it. But then, things were interrupted when all the kids at the school got whooping cough, including each of the Riley children. Lots of kids died, including two of Eula's close friends, and school didn't pick back up for an entire year. So soon after that, Eula was ready for high school, just about the time of the attack on Pearl Harbor. She remembered her teacher trying to explain to the young kids the implications of the attack, and she remembered being afraid that war would come to the mountains. But what did happen is World War II brought an increase in coal production. Lee's farm was doing better than ever. There was this new economic optimism. The downside was each son in the Ridley family had to go off and fight in the war. Eula graduated the eighth grade in 1942 with a class of 13. Unfortunately, there wasn't a high school close enough, and they still weren't busing in Greasy Creek, so Eula wasn't going on to high school after all. And all of a sudden, her future looked really uncertain. There were not a lot of good job opportunities for women, or kind of at all, for that matter. Um, So at first, she planned to join the clergy. The problem was, the churches in Greasy Creek had become very political, and there was a lot of turmoil between them. Their goals and missions may not have been as altruistic as Eula would have hoped. So, second option, join the military. Eula thought she could cut her hair, dress up like a boy, and sneak off to fight for her country. So one night she ran to the recruiting stand set up in town where she filled out paperwork and she lied about her age. She was only 14 at the time. She and her brother also didn't have social security numbers, but that didn't stop the military from letting them get on a bus headed for New York. Now, her brother Buster was sent to basic almost immediately, but Eula, not having dressed up like a boy, was sent to work in a factory. They wouldn't see each other again for nearly a decade. Eula's job was to stand at a conveyor belt and make sure the machine was working properly. And she would do this for 13 hours a day. Almost immediately, she realized she was being exploited. Quote, When the recruiter came to Greasy, the understanding was that transportation and lodging would be free until their first payday. However, when the paycheck finally came around, Everything was held out in charges for their travel. No one was receiving their full share of money, especially new recruits, and instead the workers were being treated like indentured servants. So, Eula said she, quote, took a page out of the union playbook back home and decided to organize. So they did. She uh, she got them together, they went on strike, and within an hour police showed up with riot gear and billy clubs, and Eula was arrested and charged with insinuating a riot. 
So she's taken down to the police station and they're like, okay, kid, how old are you? And she tells them, you know, she's 18. And they're like, uh, no, you're not. So the jig was up. So this police officer rips up the police report, puts her on a train, sends her back home to Pikeville. So this was a bummer for Eula because she wanted to be independent so badly. And she thought, you know, that was really her chance. She did not want to live in her family home anymore. She wanted to go off on her own. And so um, Eula had an older half-brother, Harvey, who was expecting his 10th child with his wife. And so Eula went to work for them for two months as a hired girl, which I think basically means like a maid um, and and a babysitter. And she did such a good job for them that they started referring her to all of their friends. And so she had all this business taking care of little kids. And her brother was like, you know, you need to stay in Mud Creek because the population is growing so quickly. There are all these babies and you're really good with them. So she's in Mud Creek still. And around this time, Eula met a boy named McKinley Hall. McKinley Hall. He had a little bit of a drinking problem, but he seemed like a generally good guy. So they dated for a while. And then on December 6th, 1944, they got married. And for a couple of weeks, things were good. They lived with McKinley's mom in her storefront home. McKinley was looking for a job. Uh, Eula did this without letting her parents know. So she broke the news to them after they were married. Um, They were not thrilled at first. They sort of came around to the idea. They asked around town about McKinley's reputation, and they got mixed reviews. (laughs) So a few months into their marriage, McKinley came home very drunk, and she picked the wrong time to confront him for still not getting a job, and he threw a glass bottle just in her direction. Now, luckily this time, it didn't hit her, but it easily could have. The next morning, he acted like nothing happened. And then after that, he sort of cleaned up his act for a minute. He got this short-term mining job. He did well for a couple of weeks. And then he started drinking again. And so she basically learned that she had to hide from him on nights that he came home late. So if, if the clock got past a certain time, she would go and sleep in the basement. And McKinley's own mother even directed her to do this, was like, for your own safety, this is probably a good idea. So one morning, as she tried to get him to wake up for work, you know, he was sleeping too late, there was another altercation. And this time, she was left with two broken ribs. And this was her first time seeing a real doctor was getting treated for these broken ribs. And that doctor's visit got the attention of Eula's dad. He heard that his daughter had to go to the, ho- the, the doctor. When Lee Riley got word of what was happening, he decided to get on a bus to Mud Creek to kill McKinley Hall. But instead of that happening, McKinley charmed Mr. Riley. Within minutes of his arrival, the gun was put away, and they were sitting together laughing and drinking. He had convinced Mr. Riley that he was taking great care of Eula, and her stomach pains, those little broken ribs, those were just the result of an accident. He, he didn't mean her any harm. 
This is sad because not long after meeting McKinley, Eula's dad passed away in his sleep. And so he died thinking that Eula's husband was being good to her and taking care of her and, you know, not beating her, which wasn't the case. There's a quote from her here. It says, um, quote, I went from being one of the prettiest girls in the creek to being tortured. I didn't know there was people on this earth so cruel. How the hell did I let this happen? And then just weeks after the incident with the broken ribs, Eula found out she was pregnant. And of course, she worried about bringing a child into this abusive, loveless home, but she didn't have a choice. And so Randy Hall was their first child in 1954, then Nanetta in 1956. Their third child, Colleen, died shortly after childbirth, and Troy, Danny, and Dean came years later. McKinley did nothing to help her at home. He was still drinking too much, and he was still beating her. And she, you know, she wanted to leave him. She thought about leaving him. There was nowhere for her to go. She didn't have enough money. She wasn't going to leave and let the kids stay with him. Uh, He was a violent man. And so it was just, she didn't have options, right? Now, they they both knew that they were going to have to somehow make more money than what he was bringing in with his part-time coal work. And so they started making and distributing moonshine as a side hustle. And they did this together. And Eula said, quote, This wasn't no rot gut made from car radiators or acid. People knew our whiskey was good, clean, and safe. We had a good reputation. And whenever they got caught, they could just pay off the sheriff and, you know, move right along. At this time in her life, Eula was connecting more and more with her community. Um, She would, she sort of stepped into this role as caregiver. It was just always this natural place for her. So she would give people rides to, you know, the doctor's offices that were far away. She would check in on people at their houses, just help out wherever she could. So she got a call one day from a woman named Claydine. Claydine was eight months pregnant and in a similar marital situation as Eula. And her husband had told her that since all the women in his family had given birth at home, she could too. But he was away at work when she went into labor. Eula had played the role of midwife for plenty of other women by now. So Eula was like, I, you know, I, I got this. But then she realized it was a premature pregnancy. And so they needed to get Claydine to a doctor. So first, Eula took Claydine to Pikeville Methodist Hospital. Uh, they got there. They wouldn't admit them. So they got back in McKinley's truck. A truck, by the way, that McKinley had forbade Eula from driving. And uh, they sped off to the next hospital, which was Our Lady of the Way in Martin, Kentucky. This was a 30-bed hospital founded by three Catholic nuns in 1947. And when they told the staff that Claydine didn't have a doctor and that she wouldn't be able to afford the pregnancy charge and the pharmaceutical copay, they were turned away for a second time. There was a miners' hospital in McDowell that opened in 1953. Recently, it had been purchased by a nonprofit, Appalachian Regional Hospitals. This was a smaller hospital, further away, but it was their last chance. I mean, there was nothing else remotely close by. So 
Again, the receptionist asked for Claydine's doctor's name. And by that time, Eula was like, I have had enough. She said she didn't care if she had to call the police. She would call the paper, uh, the Floyd County Times, and she would tell them all about all these hospitals refusing to see a very pregnant woman about to give birth. And that did it. That was enough. So Claydine was finally admitted to a hospital, and two hours later, she gave birth to a healthy baby. This was another moment in Eula's life that was sort of eye-opening for her. And when word got out about how determined and smart and persistent Eula had been, she got a phone call. Uh, She got a phone call about the Appalachian Regional Hospital having a retreat at Jenny Wiley State Park. And so Eula decided to attend that retreat. And this was a fancy gathering. This was Eastern Kentucky's high society. But the ARH, the Appalachian Regional Hospital, made a mistake that day because they passed around this fact sheet, okay? They were handing out these fact sheets and preaching about how they would provide medical services to anyone regardless of their ability to pay. And Eula was not going to let them get away with that. So as this speaker was walking away from the podium, she said, may I ask who's responsible for the so-called fact sheet? Now, the man that was up at the podium actually knew who she was. He'd already heard about what she'd done at the hospital. And he actually started to just walk away again um, and try to avoid the confrontation, but she stopped him. And she said, quote, Way I see it, never no bigger lie ever printed on a piece of paper than this. You don't give a damn what color they are, I'm sure, as long as they've got green. I wish I had this fact sheet when I brought that lady in to give birth last week. You don't have a pill in that place to give these people you claim to serve. We're living proof. The speaker tried to dismiss her, saying that, you know, this wasn't the time or place for this. Um, But he offered to meet and talk to her further. So she marched right up to him and demanded to know where and when. Eula headed to the hospital the next morning at 7 a.m., and she spent about a half hour speaking her mind and telling them about her experience. Quote, Eula had gained an intuitive sense of public health from her good deeds in the holler, and it was showing. She was starting a dialogue, she hoped, and even diplomatically made a point to shower them with a few compliments of their work with local miners. So you can see she's starting to learn how to play the game, you know? She's starting to learn about how to act in local politics. She also becomes an avid reader around this time. She reads books like Night Comes to the Cumberlands, a biography of a depressed area, and she really starts learning more about the relationship between coal companies and their employees. Now, local activists were hearing about all of this. They were hearing about what she'd done at the retreat and how she was helping these local people, and they started seeking her out, looking for advice and for guidance and to just make a connection. There were two groups in particular that were kind of uh, making themselves known in the late 50s. There was the East Kentucky Workers' Rights Organization, that's EKWRO, and the 979 Community Action Council, CAC. Uh, From the name, you can tell the former was more concerned with workers' rights, specifically. And then uh, the 979 
was more about uh, incremental changes in lifestyle things like clean drinking water, paved roads, keeping the lights on. And Eula knew that she needed to connect with these organizations if she was going to proceed with this activism. Now, in the meantime, her kids started attending elementary school, and they were always coming home hungry. And so finally, she was like, what's the deal with this? Why are they not feeding you at school? So what she learned was that the school was separating the kids whose families could afford lunch and those who couldn't. So what they would do is they would have the poorer kids sit up on a stage in their auditorium and watch while the kids who could afford food ate their lunches on the gym floor below, which is really just bizarre. Apparently, most of the low-income families weren't aware of this, weren't aware of what what was going on at school, because all the kids were too ashamed to even tell their parents that they were having to watch the rich kids eat while they went hungry. It's so sad. So, obviously, this concerned Eula, and she decided it was time to go to one of these organizations' meetings. Um, So... This was a place for people to voice their frustrations of the injustices taking place in their communities and, you know, just watching the rich get richer while the poor got poorer. And Eula did get up and speak at her very first meeting, and she told them about her kids and the school lunch situation. And they were like, all right, let's act on this. Quote, that next Friday morning, with a new policy laid out, EKWRO and the 979CAC lined up outside the Floyd County Board of Education to meet with the superintendent and board officials. It became a reckoning for all the wrongs committed by the school board over the years, including the abhorrent school lunch issue. The people were ready to fight back against the political elite. About 60 parents showed up to help protest. Uh, Some of the school board members had been tipped off that this was going to happen, and they showed up with helmets and baseball bats. Let me say that again. School board members showed up with baseball bats. And at that point, probably to no one's surprise, a fight broke out. Uh, The super ended up getting punched in the face, and (laughs) the school board did end up agreeing to meet with the parents. And ultimately, the board decided to change policy. So all students were allowed to sit freely, and they started working on a new lunch policy, which would provide a proper amount of food for each child, equally. This was kind of Eula's first taste of doing something and having actual results, right? Eula had organized, and the organization had worked, So what else was possible? I'm going to end here for part one of the Eula Hall series. Normally I like to leave you with kind of a cliffhanger ending, but this is going to be three parts. I wanted to make it somewhat even. And just know that from here on out, the rest of the story is quite a roller coaster. So um, stay tuned for part two and three, which will be coming out in the, in the next couple of days, hopefully. 
Um, I also wanted to take a second to give a quick shout out to listener Michelle. Oh my gosh. She sent me a very generous donation. I am so appreciative. I'm flattered. Um, So thank you so much, Michelle. Uh, That just made my day. It made my week. Um, It also came in the day before my birthday. So your timing was excellent. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that's all I've got. So, oh, also, if you're listening on Spotify, uh, that rating system is still fairly new. So if you haven't done it yet, please scroll to the top where the headline of the show is and click that rating button. That helps me out a lot. All right. So part two and three will be out soon. Stay tuned and thank you for listening.